Welcome to Charles Stanley Radio, podcasts providing economic updates combined with some light-hearted conversation during this time of uncertainty. We talk to people from across Charles Stanley to get their insights and recommendations for life in lockdown. Good morning, everybody. My name's John Cunliffe. I'm the Chief Investment Officer of Charles Stanley. I'll be joined this morning by John Redwood, who's our Chief Global Strategist, and we'll be talking about the role of central banks in helping the economy recover from the effects of the global pandemic. Fed met last night, um, and it's clearly no longer in preemptive mode, as it hasn't really been for some time. Um, It it does seem to us that the Fed is is very happy to be behind the curve when it comes to policy, and it certainly won't be raising rates until we get a a period of above-target inflation. Do you think in the round that the policy stance of the Fed and the other major central banks is going to be sufficient to ensure a a solid enough economic lift from the the issues that we faced uh, in the global economy from the pandemic? Well, I think the the Fed is pursuing a very loose policy. And I think the uh, US system of vaccination and control of the virus has a reasonable chance of success. And I think you need the two together. I think in the European space, you've, you've got the, the twin problems. And whilst I think the European Central Bank will be very supportive and have plenty of flexibility to keep interest rates around zero and to keep on buying bonds, uh, there are more uncertainties about how quickly they're going to roll out the vaccine and how serious the third wave of the virus attack is going to be. If that lasts too long uh, into the spring and early summer, then it's another blow for the European economy, but they'll get there in the end. Uh, eventually, the, the virus will retreat or the vaccines will be successful, we trust. But I think the Fed was very interesting last night because I think they had a tight rope to walk. I, I think they both wanted to say to the markets, we are not worried about inflation. We are going to carry on supporting the, the monetary policy of this country to promote a very vigorous recovery. And you should stop worrying and stop trying to force up longer term interest rates. But they also wanted to look realistic. And so they did actually edge up their forecasts of inflation and uh, for reducing unemployment a bit. And I think one wants to watch the the employment because the Fed keeps saying, relax about inflation, because all the time we've got quite a lot of unemployment. We're not going to budge. We're going to stay very supportive. But their forecasts now say that uh, unemployment will be coming down quite sharply. Uh, and so then people are going to start testing them out as to when they might need to move their, their forecasts for short-term rates going up a bit. And of course, that's the key issue, because although um, we've seen a reasonable increase, quite a significant increase in, in expectations of GDP, I mean, they've gone up from 4.2 to 6.5 between December and, um, and, and last night's FOMC. As you say, unemployment's down half a percent from when they last put their projections out. And we've had a you know, a 0.4% increase in core PCE from 1.8 to 2.2 this year. So clearly, you know, these are um, indicative and consistent with the view that the economy is going to be running pretty hot for the next year or two. Um, Do you think that the Fed is going to be credible when it's able to guide that there won't be any rate hike until well into 2023, if not later, against this kind of backdrop? Well, I think they will be dragged further in the direction of the market if the markets are right. Uh, If we get surprises on the upside on inflation and we get surprises on the downside on unemployment, uh, then the market pressure might resume on the Fed. And we would expect to see the economists of the 
the Fed's committee for professional reasons, feeling they need to move a bit closer yeah, yeah. to where yeah. everybody else is. So um, I think it is a battle between the Fed and the markets. Uh, and we've had round one of that battle where the markets took the Fed on for a bit and drove the longer rates a bit higher. I think they did enough and said enough last night to reassure people a bit, but I don't think the battle's over. And I think we may have another spate of this where the markets latch on to a particular figure mm. or a particular um, change of mood and try and test out how far the Fed will go uh, in allowing long-term rates to move upwards under market pressure. And it was very interesting reading what the Fed said about their bond intervention. They first of all reaffirmed that they would carry on with the 80 billion of treasuries and 40 billion of mortgage securities as the base case. And they left themselves flexible both ways in, in, in the language. And, and they made it clear that um, if the long-term rate started to go up too much, they, they would think that was a bit of an unruly market and they might step up the bond purchasing, but they also left open the possibility uh, that in due course, there will be a taper on purchases. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. I think at the, at the end of the day, as you say, John, it's all about flexibility to, to respond to market developments in, in the appropriate way. Um, and I think what's interesting in terms of what's happened in the US Treasury market, which obviously is the, is the most dominant and most um, you know followed uh, government bond market in the world, is the fact that in 2013, when we had the, the so-called Fed taper tantrum, when Ben Bernanke, the then um, Fed chair, was, was floating the idea of tapering asset purchases, we had a big rise in bond yields, which did cause financial markets a degree of discomfort, as we know. But it also um, was led by real interest rates rising more rapidly than nominal interest rates. Now, certainly in, in this particular um, sell-off in, in US Treasuries, we've seen nominal rates rise rather more rapidly than real rates, with inflation expectations uh, rising in, in a way which is, you know, giving a, a reflationary steer to the market. So, you know, against that backdrop with yields rising, but market implied inflation rates rising a little bit more rapidly, um, is there a level in terms of yields in the US market that you think could cause that the Fed and market participants more broadly a degree of discomfort? Yes, I'm sure there is. Um, I think it's difficult to put a precise number on it, and it will be judged at the time against the mood. I think if you have a series of sharp movements up in rates, uh, then maybe uh, 2% on the 10-year becomes a, an important level or whatever, and I think it will be defined by the events and the mood of the market at the time. Uh, and the Fed will obviously keep an eye on the market mood and the commentary, uh, and whilst they need to boss the markets. They are in danger of not bossing the markets. Uh, and if the markets sense weakness, then they might accelerate those moves and force the issue sooner. Uh, we had an attempt at that. It seems to have uh, calmed down for a bit. Uh, I think they did about just enough in, in their language uh, to reassure people that they wish to keep interest rates very low for uh, the next couple of years and that they are intending to give massive support to these markets and to the real economy. But the fact that they had to up their own forecasts of their success in reducing unemployment and getting a bit more inflation uh, shows that they can be moved. And I guess they would say, well, if we hadn't moved a bit, we wouldn't look at all credible. Mm. And if they'd moved too much, then the markets would say, well, then we've got to reprice everything because you're actually telling us uh, that you're going to have to taper and introduce interest rate rises sooner than your dot plot suggests. No, and that's exactly right, and, and it is a fine line. And I guess it's also worth mentioning that 
if someone had said to you, John, at the start of the year that we'd have a, a US Treasury 10 year note not far off one and three quarter percent, which is pretty much a, a 90 basis point move, and that would take place you know, within the first quarter of the year, and yet global stocks would still be higher. Would you have been a little bit surprised by that, or do you think that would have been a reasonable outcome? No, I would have been surprised, and I, I would have said that if I'd confidently predicted um, as big a rise in longer-term rates as that, I'd have been more negative on shares, of course. Uh, and so it, it's it's a testimony to the belief in the markets that there is going to be a very good profits recovery. Uh, and testimony to the belief in the markets that they don't actually think the Fed is going to put them through monetary tightening anytime soon, which I think has managed to create this bifurcated market where you've had quite a sharp sell-off in treasuries, but you've had enough shares going up to, to take markets to new highs. Yeah, and obviously, you know, the, the Fed, I guess, like a lot of central banks, will be looking at um, output gap models to try and gauge the point at which, you know, inflation does return. And that's particularly important, um, you know, in the US where, where growth will be maybe double what trend growth is normally um, due to be. And obviously, flack is, is absolutely key. I mean, at what point do you think the, the US economy could be operating above full capacity? Do you think it's going to be next year or could it even be this year? I think it's unlikely to be this year because there's still quite a lot of virus around and we, we still haven't got rid of all the closures and there's still quite a lot of social distancing uh, for those who believe in it. America is, of course, divided on the virus, but there are a lot of people who do believe in it all and take it very seriously, understandably. Uh, so I think it, it will be the following year, and that's implied in the in the revised forecast that uh, you don't get to unemployment below 4% um, that quickly. And that would seem to be the level the Fed now thinks is something around full employment. I suspect when they get there, they'll redefine it and decide that full employment is is lower unemployment than that, mm. um, because there's still quite a bit of slack in the labour market when 4% of a lot of people are, are without jobs. Uh, so I think that's what I'll be watching, the, the progress on the employment side. And I think that's where the Treasury Secretary comes in, because we need to remember we've got a very powerful Treasury Secretary who seems to have the confidence of the President and knows the Fed inside out from having run the Fed mm. and will have quite a lot of influence over uh, Jerome Powell, the current head of the Fed. And she has both said she wants to run it hot and that she's looking particularly at the labour market and she wants a jobs miracle. And why wouldn't they want a jobs miracle? Because um, the president defeated President Trump, who dined out on a jobs miracle for quite a long time until it all went horribly wrong for him with the COVID-19 issues. And I'm sure President Biden would love to be able to report that he's exceeded his predecessor and that uh, America is now at something you can call full employment. And of course, against that backdrop, um, Yellen and, and obviously a lot of the labour market economists that are, are now both in the Treasury, but also the Fed as well, are, are very much focused on getting people that have been detached or, or semi-detached from the, the labour market back in. And that again suggests that if, if you can do that, maybe you create um, a better and more sustainable long-term economic environment by allowing the, the economy to run hot. So I guess it's it's a key um, focus, I think, of the current policy environment, not just to get to whatever you traditionally might have viewed full employment to be, but also beyond that to get the semi-detached and detached people back in there as well. Yeah, I think that's a very strong point. Um, United States figures show a relatively low participation rate for a strong advanced economy for people in the in the workforce and quite a lot of people 
are not actively seeking work, so they don't count as unemployed. Uh, so I think um, the Biden agenda, sort of leveling up agenda in the United States of America, would want to see more people being available for work and being promoted into work or encouraged and trained into work. And so uh, that should mean there's rather more slack in that labor market than those um, simple forecasts imply with the um, one, one dot unemployment number. You've got to look at the wider labor market where you could find the labor market expands. There's also, of course, going to be an expansion of potential labor because there's been a very big change of immigration policy. Mm. Uh, and Trump was battling away to keep people out, particularly across the Mexican border, but generally. Yeah. Uh, and President Biden is very keen to attract people from the central, rather poor states of Latin America into the United States of America. So there will be the need for a lot more jobs for, for those arriving from poorer countries. Okay, I mean, that's exactly right. So, so you know, we are looking at a, at a rapidly improving environment for the labour market, which if, if sustained, um, is, is obviously going to be good news. Now, everybody seems to be view, focusing on the, on the upside risk to inflation at the moment. You know, everybody is talking about inflation overshoot, maybe the, the, the Fed losing control of inflation and the central, sorry, and the bond market vigilantes coming back into the frame in a way they've not been for a long time. And some of the price action we're, we're seeing at the moment reflects that. You know, is there any downside risk to inflation in, in this environment? Is there, is there a risk still against all this stimulus, both monetary and fiscal, that central banks can't engineer the very thing they've spent a whole decade trying to get? I think it's quite a small risk, but uh, it's always there, isn't it? Uh, how would it would how would it materialize? Well, it would mean that people stayed very cautious and very negative. So all those deposits that people had from forced savings or involuntary savings over the COVID period uh, stay in their bank accounts. And so it doesn't translate into activity and possible upward price pressure. The most likely um, event that could cause that would, of course, be a new variant of COVID-19 itself that defeated the vaccines or a very bad wave of the existing variants before enough people are vaccinated, uh, requiring more long lockdowns or prolonged lockdowns. And that would obviously have a bad impact on all of the traded services and, and therefore create more price weakness or, or simply suspend price formation. Because I mean, how do you know what the price of a meal is when all the restaurants are closed? Uh, so you could have that effect uh, or you, you could have um, the Fed forced into tightening prematurely, which would, of course, then, um, as it would be designed to do, would, would stop inflation, but it would also stop activity taking off. So that's the other dangerous scenario that markets are watching out for. The paradox is that the, it's the pressures of the market wanting next year's story rather than this, this year's story that could mm. cause the premature aborting of the uh, recovery itself, which is the means by which you're going to get the price rises. So, so I suppose the, the the risks are that the the scarring in the economy proves to be more substantial and sustained, um, and I guess the 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 other relevant point is that um, the precautionary or rather the involuntary savings that have been accumulated over the the last year by a, a lot of slightly better off people may not be deployed in the broad economy in the way that people expect. You might get a bit of a, a pickup once the reopening takes place, but it won't be sustained in the way that a lot of the bullish economists out there are expecting. No, that's right. And a point in, in, in favour of that more cautious view is that, of course, 
you can't eat the meals you missed. You can't take the holidays you didn't take. Yeah. Uh, all you can hope is to get back to the sort of levels um, yeah. that you had prior to the, the closures. And so all those businesses that are very badly scarred by having months without revenues and, and with uh, closures are not going to get back the lost revenue. All, all they can do is, is hope to start trading more successfully once the reopening occurs. And as you and I have often discussed, there is the issue of what happens when those businesses reopen with a lot more debt from the period when they had no revenue. Yeah. And they then need working capital and they need to hire people and start paying them wages before they get enough revenue in through the door, perhaps. And that is a moment of danger uh, when there could be more bankruptcies if the banks yeah. are not forgiving. And if too much capacity is lost, um, then you, you could both have disappointing results in, in terms of general output, but you could also have quite a few price pressures because those that have managed to reopen successfully would be experiencing quite a lot of demand because capacity has been reduced. Mm. Uh, and then you get a nasty combination of not enough output, but also uh, quite a bit more inflation. And of course, if you take a step back, I mean, you know, central banks have been absolutely influential in, in ensuring that what was a, um, a an air pocket in terms of growth didn't um, didn't didn't generate a, a sort of depression, and they've certainly oiled the wheels of, of finance um, and ensured financial conditions are easy, and they've ensured that the provision of capital uh, in the broad in the global economy is is unimpaired. They've obviously um, for the time being ensured that that defaults are minimal, as we've talked about, or that could be an issue going forwards. And they've also, um, you know, aligned with um, fiscal policy in a very pro-cyclical way to ensure that policy stimulus is 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 a is a very positive force for economic recovery. Is there a limit, do you think, to what central banks can achieve here? Um, you know, they are very much viewed as as the knights in 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 shining armor who come galloping across the the landscape and and rescue markets and the economy in their hour of need. But is there? Is there a sense in which sometimes we expect almost too much from central banks? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the central banks feel that. And that's why a feature of, of this last year of anti-pandemic policy has been central banks constantly saying we can't do this on our own. Mm. Uh, governments need to be very engaged. Governments need to be very supportive of yeah. business. They need to be very supportive of individuals who lost jobs or income as a result of the pandemic uh, measures. Uh, and they're looking to government to underwrite them. And I think it has been a remarkable period when I think governments and central banks, um, certainly in the United States, United Kingdom, I think also to a reasonable extent in the Eurozone and definitely in Japan, have worked very closely together. And they need to carry on working closely together because uh, the banks now have a lot of potential bad debt and they, they want the reassurance that uh, taking a reasonable attitude towards all that, extending and pretending as it's called, uh, is not going to cause them difficulties with their regulator and with the central bank who, who finance them. Uh, and the central banks want reassurance that the, the fiscal stance is not going to offset what they are doing. The governments have to spend enough money and to borrow enough money. And whilst all the central banks claim that they're not keeping interest rates down and buying bonds in order to simply finance the, the government's expenditures, which are well in excess of tax revenues, it's nonetheless very convenient that the central bank policy facilitates exceptionally cheap borrowing in very large quantities by the leading governments. And it's that combination which has provided the amount of support we've seen. And some people say, but yes, but we still had quite big falls in output by historical standards. That's right. But if you decide to close down 
maybe a quarter of your economy because you need to for social distancing and anti-pandemic health reasons. Uh, it's not a bad successor policy that it was a single figure percentage decline instead of a, a much bigger decline, given the impact the anti-pandemic policy on its own would have had. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, at what point do you think the markets might begin to question this um, implicit deficit financing that we seem to have at the moment, where you know the amount of bonds that are being issued by governments are pretty much the amount that central banks are buying? Is it a game that you think they're prepared to continue to play as long as inflation remains relatively well behaved? Yes, I think that's exactly right. I think inflation is, is the canary in the mind that one wants to listen to or watch. Uh, and as long as there isn't a, a sustained rise in inflation, I think people will, will be tolerant uh, of the happy coincidence that the central banks buy a lot of bonds at very expensive prices and governments are, are therefore able to borrow a lot of money very cheaply, uh, and it is a very necessary part of the big offset governments needed to design to the um, big restrictions on economic activity that the pandemic required. I think it's also a question of duration, isn't it? Um, you can probably sustain this for maybe up to two years, uh, but you can't make it a way of life. Uh, it's got to be a one-off event, and you then put it behind you and get back to something more like normal. And, Markets have been tolerant. I think when it began, most of us thought it might last for a year. We now accept it's going to last for longer than that. And that has happened without markets taking fright. And of course, um, markets, again, are going to be fairly favourable, I would say, to the policy environment at the moment. If we see high levels of nominal GDP and low levels of bond yields, and again, that's the issue around at what point does a rise in bond yields not only um, you know, signal trouble in terms of the market's expectation of future inflation, but also in terms of debt sustainability. Because as we've talked about over the last year to 18 months, particularly last year, although we've had a, a pandemic, um, debt sustainability arguably is better because the amount of debt that's been issued is issued at, at very low levels. And, and that's clearly good from a, a debt financing perspective. Well, that's right. And um, the, the cost of servicing the public debt in some countries has actually fallen despite states taking on massive new amounts of debt. And that is because the, the rates are so low so that when they refinance existing debt, um, they get a bonus. But it's also, of course, because um, the governments uh, outside the EU uh, own the central bank uh, one to one. And as the central banks buy in the debt, then obviously the, the interest charges are internalized within the, the wider government and central bank machine. Uh, and they, they account for that in different ways, but there is clearly a very big cash flow benefit uh, when you're paying the interest to yourself effectively because you, you own the central bank. It's a bit different in the Eurozone because of course, uh, whilst um, the ECB is collectively owned by all the member states, it's not a one-to-one -one ratio. And, and when the Eurozone buys in, Italian state debt, for example, Italy has to pay the interest to the European Central Bank. It's not the same as paying it to yourself. Uh, so there's a bit more difficulty there. But I think we, we should, in this conversation, mention the, the other outlier in all this, which is Japan and the Bank of Japan. And of course, the Bank of Japan has been doing on a huge scale what we're worrying about in the West for, for many years now. They have shown that if you remain a low inflation country, as Japan has remained, uh, you can expand your state debt massively and you can keep interest rates around zero mm -hmm. and out to 10 years quite successfully. 
uh, and provide a huge continuing economic stimulus through uh, budget deficits without it being destabilizing. Now, I don't think America and Britain have quite the same freedom that Japan has, because I think we have more inflation-prone economies. And as soon as inflation becomes a problem, you, you have to change that style of doing things. and You have to uh, allow higher nominal interest rates. But it does show that it is quite possible for a, a large advanced country to borrow huge sums of money at zero uh, and for it to be stable. Yeah, so, so just to wrap up, John, I think what we're saying is that central banks are playing an absolutely key role um, in the successful reflation of, of, the, um, of, the, of the global economy uh, to help lift economic activity out of its, uh, its pandemic decline. But obviously it can't take place with also without the explicit support of the fiscal authorities, because clearly in the post 2010 world where there was too much fiscal tightening, the, uh, there was too much arguably focus on, on central banks to keep the show on the road. And that did give rise to all sorts of distortions. So I think what we're saying is central banks are probably 50 or 60% of the solution to the problem. But clearly the fiscal authorities need to be um, you know, aligned as well. Otherwise we could easily see you know, a return to some form of secular stagnation, which is highly undesirable because there is a, a positive to come out from the pandemic, perhaps on the economic side, is that finally people are realizing the extent to which fiscal and monetary policy needs to be aligned in a much more pro-cyclical and supportive way. Yeah, that's right. I think that is fundamental to what's been going on. And so far it's worked very well because it's provided a massive offset to what would have been far more damaging event uh, without the financial support that both the central banks and the governments offered and the the governments couldn't offer the financial support they did without the central banks being very accommodating and they've managed to pull this off with most people still believing the central banks are genuinely independent whereas of course the independence yeah. is in a very limited narrow area uh, and what we are seeing is there has to be high level agreement and working together on the magnitude of the combined stimulus and you can't have a good fiscal stimulus without keeping the interest rates low to allow the governments to borrow the money. Uh, and the central banks can't go off and do all this monetary expansion if, if the governments are not happy about it. So I think it's been very fortunate uh, that the two in, in each of the major centres have worked together pretty well uh, and that the markets have decided that this is necessary and haven't questioned all this too much. John, that's brilliant. I think you've provided everybody with some great insights this morning. And I think what we're saying in conclusion is that central banks can um, provide the requisite support to help get the global economy firing again, but it does need to be aligned with fiscal policy. Um, I think any return to the um, post-2009-10 environment that we saw with Treasuries worried about fiscal sustainability, I think could prove to be a problem. But I think we'll just have to leave it there, John. Any last comments from you? Well, I agree with that. Um, your analysis is exactly right. I mean, I wish the central banks and governments every success because it's in all our interests that this does work. Uh, it is a huge policy change in response to a very dramatic event, which none of us have ever witnessed before. And it looks so far as if it is working, but we do need to worry away. Your very good questions today highlighted that the markets paradoxically could upset it if they get too worried too soon about inflation or some other issue. Yeah. Okay, we'll leave it there, John. That was great. And I suspect we'll be doing another one of these fairly soon just to give a, an update as to how the economic and financial market landscape is responding 
to this unprecedented policy stimulus. So thanks, John. We'll speak later. Yeah, thanks a lot. Well done. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Charles Stanley Radio. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it offered a small escape from life under lockdown. Please subscribe to be kept up to date with our latest releases. If you have any questions or comments about the content covered in today's episode, or any questions you'd like us to address in future episodes, then please do email these to events at charles-stanley.co.uk. Once again, thank you for listening, and as always, stay safe. The value of investments can fall as well as rise. Investors may get back less than invested. Past performance is not a reliable guide to the future.